Hello, listeners. That's here. Welcome to the How To Academy podcast. What does it mean to have a self? How can we make sense of the selfhood of a dog or of an octopus? Could there be an entirely different kind of consciousness from our own? Philip Ball, a former editor at Nature and one of the UK's most renowned science writers, set out to answer those questions in a remarkable new book called, appropriately, The Book of Minds. He joined us for a conversation with science filmmaker David Malone. One of the things that's really interesting about it is the title, you put the word minds on the cover, and and a lot of books that cover this sort of territory, they have the word consciousness or self or brain or computer, and you didn't even write the book of the mind, you put minds. Tell us about the mind, why the mind, Philip? Well, yeah, you're right. It is an odd term. I mean, it, it you know, you, you sort of see it in these old books on philosophy of mind, uh, going back to, you know, Gilbert Ryle, the concept of mind or so on in the mid 20th century. And I guess, first of all, I think it's because I'm trying to talk about consciousness is one aspect of our mental experience. The mind, you know, in, in my way of saying it, it's the totality of it. It's the totality of experience. And I don't think we really have a good alternative word for that. Consciousness, as I say, really doesn't do justice to it. But in the end, I guess what I arrive at is that mind is probably better seen as a verb than as a noun. So I talk about mindedness of matter. You know, it's something that we do. We mind in our lives. I mean, we use it as a verb in that sense, of course, but I'm thinking more broadly of we have experience. That's the nature of our existence. And so what I'm really looking at here is the nature of experience. And you're right, it's plural, because the only experience we ever have is not just human experience, but our own. So everything else we have to more or less assume in terms of what other minds are out there. But I think it's fair to say that there's a consensus amongst animal uh, behaviorists, at least, that this quality of experience we have isn't unique to humans, that it's reasonable to, to, to think that some other animals, perhaps all our other animals, and some people would even say all other living things, have some degree of experience. So that's really the aspect I'm trying to get at with this term mind. Does that mean that you can imagine a mind, something that has a mind but isn't conscious? That's one of the issues that I wanted to to explore here. What are the, if there are any, what are the irreducible characteristics of having a mind? And the definition, and it's not a rigorous definition, either scientifically or philosophically, um, but the, the working definition that I use is that to, in order to have a mind, for an entity to have a mind, there has to be something that it is like to be that thing. So I don't think that uh, it, it's to be like to be a rock is to be anything at all. I don't think there is something it is like to be a rock. I suspect most people would think there probably is something it is like to be a dog, to be a cat, certainly to be a, uh, a gorilla. So that's really the, um, the, the, the issue that I'm, I'm talking about, that mind means that there is some sensation, some experience, some people call it sentience, but for us, it's something more, you know, there, there's something more to it than, than sentience. Where consciousness fits into that, I think, is somewhat unclear. I was quite interested in the idea of whether it's possible to have a mind that doesn't have consciousness. I'm not quite, I certainly don't have the ability to imagine 
quite what that would be. But one thing that I, I do conclude is that it's not quite as simple as that, because I think consciousness itself isn't a single thing. It's not like a... It's a, not you know, an on or off, you're saying. It's, it's not an on or off. It's a mm. continuum. But, but also, it's not a kind of a, a fluid or a quality that, you know, we have more or less of. I think, um, and it's not just me who thinks it, there are, um, you know, are people who study animal behavior who suspect that consciousness itself needs to be broken down into different qualities, different dimensions, really. And different creatures will have more or less of those. So the nature of the consciousness of a dog, um, certainly of an octopus, is probably different from ours. And one thing I was interested to, to think about is, could there be qualitatively different kinds of consciousness that are really different from anything that we seem to recognize in other animals? So, yeah, that, that's the sort of question that I was hoping to explore by trying to open up this question of what a mind is into what are the dimensions, what are the coordinates of the space in which minds exist? We'll, we'll, we'll talk about the different aspects of consciousness, but let's just situate the other thing that I'm quite fond of that I have, and that's a self. What's the relationship of the self to consciousness? Can you have consciousness? See, I think my dog is conscious, but I'm not sure it has the same kind of self as me. I'm not sure that it sits there thinking, I'm a dog, but I wish I was a cat. Exactly. I, I, and I think that is one of the aspects of how we can break down consciousness. And in fact, the neuroscientist Antonio Damasio does precisely that. So he suggests that there are two types of consciousness, that there is what he calls core consciousness, which is this basically an experience, a sensation, you might call it sentience, a what it is to be like, if you like. Um, but then he says that we, at least, we humans, have also an autobiographical self, an autobiographical consciousness. That's really where the self comes in, this autobiographical consciousness. We have a notion that we are beings with a past that we can remember, with a potential future that we can imagine. And all of this, Damasio thinks, is mediated by language. We can articulate to ourselves what this consciousness is and articulate to others what it is. So in his view, the notion of a self does seem to be, if, it, if you identify it with this autobiographical consciousness, then it does seem to be bound up with things that, as far as we know so far, are uniquely human, and in particular, the notion of language that allows us to articulate that idea. So, you know, in that sense, if he's right, then it does seem to be likely that other animals, if they don't have languages, and there isn't really good evidence that they have languages in the same sense as, as human language, then perhaps they don't have this autobiographical self. But it is now debated whether it used to be thought that animals, all other animals, live in a kind of perpetual present. So they're just, you know, flooded with, with sensory information and they respond to it somehow. Not like a machine necessarily, but that's what they're doing. They have no sense of the future and no real concept of the past. Now we have good reasons to think that that's not so clear for animals, mm -hmm. that there are some, and maybe, you know, we'll talk about, I won't uh, go into detail now, maybe we'll talk about it in a bit, there are some experiments that suggest that some animals certainly have a, a notion of being able to plan ahead, being able to construct possible futures. You know, the, the way we would think about it is they think, ah, you know, this might happen tomorrow. I'd better prepare for it now. Mm. Qu quite how that is articulated in the animal mind, we don't know and we may never know, but there does seem to be some sense of continuity. So perhaps, in, you know, in, in that sense, at least, 
they do have some notion of a self. So maybe the maybe the self like consciousness is not a sort of a an all or nothing because if the self is tied completely to language, then does that mean that children up to the age of two don't have a self? Well, exactly that. And I mean, there are some philosophers who have argued that. And I think it's a, it certainly seems quite a dangerous argument because there is a tradition, at least, of attaching, uh, of attaching moral uh, status, really, to the notion of a self. But, you know, that's a sort of, that's really the, the, the label of personhood, if you like, that once we have a self, we are a person and we have moral rights. And if you have that view that that doesn't really exist for, for infants, then it's not clear what their moral status is. And there are some philosophers, a few, who have said, well, yeah, that's the, that's the way it is, that actually, you know, children don't have, or very young infants don't have the same moral status as us. I think a lot of people, me included, would instinctively at least feel mm. there's something wrong in that argument that we, we as uh, I, I forget, maybe Bean Damasio or, uh, put it, that we deserve a better philosophy of mind <laughs> than one that arrives at that conclusion. So, you know, I, 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 I would certainly think that's true. I think that there's, you know, there, there's also a, a, a notion that perhaps the sense of self arises from our ability to not just respond to what happens and make decisions, but to be aware of ourselves doing that, to mm. almost stand outside of that immediate sort of mind dealing with the world and think, here I am dealing with the world, here I am doing this. But there are some indications that to some degree, other animals, birds and dolphins at least, can mm. do that too, in the sense that they seem able to be able to assess what is it that I know and how well do I know it? How sure am I of what I think I know? Of course, they don't say it in those words, but that is the kind of process that seems to be required to make sense of some of the things that they do in some uh, behavioural experiments. I mean, you're talking about how you could have very different kinds of conscious. Now, you, you talk about the, the octopus as a wonderful example because they're very... Um, we have a, a marine place down the road from us here and they are, they are fantastically curious creatures i mean the keepers always say if they can escape they will and that they're they're very clever you know they can open jars and all sorts of things now do you think that they're an example of a very different kind of consciousness well the, re the really interesting thing about octopuses as opposed to vertebrates so octopuses are, are kinds of mollusks so mm. that you know they don't have a backbone so uh, unlike most of the animals we tend to think of you know going going into rodents or whatever they're, they're all vertebrates but Octopuses, mollusks generally, diverged from us in evolutionary terms much, much longer ago. I mean, before the Cambrian explosion, so about 600 million years ago. Our common ancestor was probably a very humble creature indeed, a kind of little worm with a very rudimentary nervous system. And so the way Peter Godfrey Smith, um, the, the uh, philosopher, has written fantastically about octopuses in his book Other Minds, and he says that octopuses are really a separate evolutionary experiment in building minds because they diverged so long ago when before you, you might even want to say that the common ancestor had a mind. And what has happened with octopus, with cephalopods generally, octopuses and squid uh, in particular, is that, that, well, they have a very different nervous system to us. So, you know, for us, I mean, you know, it's clear that our neurons are kind of uh, are mostly situated in our brains. And it's clear that, you know, the brain controls a lot of what we do and how we think. But for octopuses, that is less clear. More than half of the neurons that they have, and they have about as many neurons as a dog. 
but more than half of them aren't in the, the the central sort of brain in the in the head region. They're distributed throughout the body in the arms, and in each of the arms, there's a kind of little cluster of of neurons, a ganglion that seems to act to some extent autonomously, almost like a little proto-brain. It seems to have memory. It seems to be able to make decisions. And uh, these other neurons are connected to the central brain, but it's not entirely clear how much communication there is. And it certainly seems to be times when the central brain of the octopus is probably just watching the arms go about their business as though watching some other creature. It doesn't really know, if you like, what they're going to do. So it's a very, very, uh, certainly a very, very different kind of neural system to us. And quite what that means for the experience of the octopus. You know, it's very, very hard to say. Um, some people think that there may be, it may have a kind of dual consciousness, one in the arms and one in the, the brain, or even multiple consciousnesses. And to, it's not clear to what degree they are integrated into a single experience. We, you know, we don't know whether an octopus experiences the world as we do, as a, a kind of whole, an integrated whole. Mm. So in the octopus, it seems possible, at least, that evolution has, has shown us that minds don't have to exist as an integrated whole, that they can be more distributed and more fragmented really and you know they can sometimes kind of come together and act together and sometimes they can you know the, each of the these little proto minds can do their own thing so it's very hard for us to even begin to imagine what an experience like that would be but yeah. what it also means is as you say octopuses have this incredibly rich range of behaviors and we're often really even people who study octopuses all their lives say, you know, we're kind of guessing what's going on. We're kind of projecting our own assumptions onto it. So it looks as though octopuses just find, you know, they just play with objects. They just kind of, you know, unfamiliar objects. They seem interested. They seem curious. They play around with them. Is it play or what is going on for the octopus? We just don't know. So, yeah, it, it's a fantastic system, as, as Peter Godfrey Smith says, for imagining you know, in a very concrete way, what another mind might be like. Hmm. I mean, you, you you talk about wondering whether they really are conscious. And you look at this in the book, that there's two opposing tendencies. There's one group who say, look, we humans have a terrible tendency to anthropomorphize. You know, your car won't start. And so you blame it as if it was, you know, you did this to me on purpose. But at the same time as the opposite tendency, the sort of this more scientific tendency to go out of their way to deny what would appear to be sentience when it seems like it's the it's the most parsimonious explanation to, to say that chimpanzees are just elaborate furry machines and they don't feel anything so it'd be fine to stick a knife in them seems perverse how how did you navigate between these two problems well i i think they kind of go hand in hand because being aware of, and how could we not be aware of, as you say, our tendency to project minds everywhere. And of course, it's what we've always done. And we've, you know, we've explained things that happen in nature uh, in terms of gods being angry and so on. Being aware of that it is not just understandable, but actually necessary to be cautious about the interpretations we make when we are observing the behavior of, of non-human creatures. But 
you can take that tendency too far. And I think in the past, it has been taken too far. So certainly the, the behavioral school of, of psychology regarded, so this is the B.F. Skinner and uh, the behaviorist, really did regard animals as automata, that there was nothing really sort of going, there was no inner life. They were just responding mm. to stimuli in a way that machines could do. And, you know, they could be taught, they could be habituated, to do certain things, but they weren't in any sense kind of conscious of deciding to do that. And that was really the, the dominant uh, view for, for, for a long time until, you know, only a, a few decades ago, maybe in the 1980s or so, when behaviorists started to, or, you know, animal psychologists started to, to, to recognize that actually, as you say, there comes a point when you see certainly something, you know, a chimpanzee say, do things so similar to, to, to how we would do them in terms of, for example, its interactions with, with other chimpanzees or its interactions with, with, with its young, th that it becomes almost perverse. And certainly it becomes, it, it becomes very convoluted to say, well, it, it looks, you know, in all respects, as far as we can tell, like they're kind of doing the same thing as us, but they're actually, they've actually got, you know, very different reasons for doing it. They haven't got minds like ours. There comes a point when it's actually more economical to say, mm. let's assume actually that, that they have minds, something like ours, that something cognitively similar is going on. And of course, that's now the argument for that is, is all the stronger when we're able to use neuroscientific techniques to see what's going on inside the brain and to look at the structures of the brain. And unsurprisingly, given our close evolutionary relationship, there are lots of similarities. And but 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 actually, it, it really comes much more from careful cognitive experiments of observing behavior in situations where we can really start to figure out how an animal, particularly other primates, are reasoning. And we can start to see that actually it really does look as though, for example, they are reasoning in a way that is attributing they are attributing minds to their other creatures. Mm. They're thinking in some cases, they're thinking, hey, I know something that, you know, that other chimp doesn't know. And so I can use that to my advantage. Chimps actually seem to do that very much. So, you know, that's something that seems to be, to, that they have in common with us. It's what uh, psychologists call a theory of mind, which is not a theory of how the mind works, but a, an assumption that other agents have minds. So there are these, you know, similarities, not just in broad terms, but in quite specific terms, behavioral similarities that I think create a very strong argument that certainly other primates and I think many other vertebrates and perhaps below need to be attributed minds that have some qualities, at least like ours, that they're not just stimulus response automata. Mm. Well, otherwise you, you're in the strange position of having to walk around London Zoo and say, it only when we get to us suddenly the whole thing all of conscious just and not, things don't happen that way generally in, in evolution do they? they they it tends to be built in bits well that's true i mean it, you know it, it it is the case that occasionally in evolution we have seen sudden jumps but there's nothing actually in the um, evolutionary record of primates that would lead us to think that we see no clear mm genetic changes for example that correspond to what we might imagine you know to the early evolution of, uh, of the evolution of very early humans so yeah there's no uh, there's no sign in the in the fossil record or in the uh, genetic uh, evolutionary record of sudden changes like that 
In fact, the complexity of human behavior seems much more recent than that when you know humans started to do things like make music, make art, you know, develop complex cultures. There's nothing that corresponds you know, anatomically or genetically to any particular sudden change that led to that. So it looks like it's something else. So yes, absolutely, that too. We would expect there to be a gradual evolution of mind throughout evolutionary history. But when we talk about having to be careful about projecting minds or consciousnesses, um, of course, the one big group of scientists who do it all the time are AI specialists. They, they solder together some bits of silicon and they go, it's conscious, deep mind or, or you know, are they? Well, I think most AI, uh, people who really know about AI are more careful than that. Of course, you know, we've just had this huge discussion everywhere in the media because one engineer at Google said, my AI is conscious. But, <laughs> you know, the absolute consensus in the field is, no, it's not. Uh, no, there's absolutely no reason to think it is. And I think that's really the consensus about every AI that is out there, that I think the people who really know about this stuff, no, no one seems to believe that they have any kind of sentience, any kind of consciousness at the moment. And there, there's no good reason to believe that they do. I think what's, what's really interesting, I mean, it's not surprising in a sense that, you know, you'll find the occasional person who does, not just because actually there's quite a, <laughs> almost a, a, a theological element in Silicon Valley. There is this kind of almost messianic tendency in Silicon Valley that comes out in, you know, uh, people like uh, the one who made this claim. It, it's the really, if you've seen the, t the, the TV series Devs, you know, it's the real sort of Devs aspect of Silicon Valley. But, you know, it's no surprise that occasionally this will happen precisely because our AI is getting so good at mimicking behavior. I mean, when I say so good, Actually, to, to my mind, you know, the transcript of the discussions that it was, it was Blake Lemoyne was the Google engineer who made the suggestion. Actually, that transcript, it wasn't anything very different from what we've seen for, you know, AI type chatbots for several years now. But, you know, it wasn't so different in the sense that actually it, bits of it are quite compelling. It, it is kind of spooky sometimes what, what they can come up with, but we know how they're doing it. You know, the, these AIs are just mining data. They're just mining our own words and, you know, reflecting them back to us, reflecting back the kinds of responses that people give to the kinds of questions that it's being asked. To my mind, it's, it's more extraordinary that we can get so far towards that sort of mimicry without any kind of mind at all to speak of. You know, that's, that, that is really striking and perhaps a little disturbing because it, what it suggests to us, what it shows to us, is that because we're quite easily fooled by this, you know, we're already at the stage where we can be fooled into thinking that we're conversing with another mind when we're not. We're just conversing with something, that, with an algorithm that is good at shuffling words. And I think that's really the, you know, the bigger worry that, yeah. that we are going to be taken in unless you know there's some sort of oversight we're going to be taken in by ais that are mindless uh, that's more dangerous i think than uh, you know than actually it, it's the more immediate danger than the idea that we're actually going to create an ai that's sentient and that's going to do terrible things mm. um, and you make quite a, a lot in the book about the importance of embodiment you know you make the point that our mind has to do things in the world and has to make up its mind, if you pardon the expression, 
with not enough data. AIs, you know, they graze on titanic amounts of data, and we just don't. We have to make up our mind without really knowing what's going on. And even the question itself is quite badly put. It's not like a chess move, is it? Sometimes a lot of what we're trying to do is it's not clear what the right answer is or even what the question is. Tell us why embodiment is, is important. Well, the, I guess maybe the place to start is to say that the mind isn't synonymous with the brain. And, you know, we tend to think it must be. I mean, the brain is, in a sense, it's the theatre of mind. It's the organising aspect of mind. But the minds have evolved and they evolve. You know, nothing evolves kind of in isolation to uh, what it's connected to. That's just not, a, you know, that's, that's what evolution does. It evolves in, in relation to its environment. And minds will have done that. So our mind has evolved for our bodies the minds of other creatures will be different largely to the degree that the creatures are different. They have different kinds of bodies. They have different kinds of sensory input. Like and, your octopus. Uh, well, exactly. Or like the, you know, the birds like the European robin that migrate using the Earth's magnetic field. It can inside, it has sensors in its, you know, in its brain that can somehow, in, in some sense, and we don't really know what this means, it's, you can't visualize it, but in some sense it can see the Earth's magnetic field and navigate <laughs> by that. Um, so it has that kind of mind that is, you know, that's a very different aspect to ours. So the, the way in which a mind is embodied, and, you know, will, is going to really shape the kinds of mind that come from it. And, you know, for example, the way our mind works is continuously making assumptions about what we can do in the world. So if you like, it, it assumes the knowledge that, that we can get up. You know, it assumes the knowledge that I can pick up this cup. The, the, the mind is geared to uh, making decisions on the basis of that embodied capability that it's, that it's um, feeding. So, you know, it's in that sense, really, um, that minds are intimately linked to the kind of embodiment that we have. But they're also they're also linked in other ways in that the bodily experience that we have feeds into our neural processes. I mean, it's uh, mm. you know the hormones, for example, in the body are constantly uh, you know uh, affecting the the way that our neurotransmitters are working. They're affecting the way we make decisions, um, you know, very very literally and obviously. So there, there is the, the mind contains actually a, a kind of representation of the body and what the body is doing. And, uh, you know, they're intimately linked in that way. And there is some suggestion, again, it's Anthony DiMatteo is one of the people who's made this suggestion, that the emotions are a part of what, uh, are a part of that interaction between body and mm. mind. Actually, the emotions that, you know, clearly emotions do respond to things like hormonal changes. And um, that the, the emotions, he thinks, are a part of the information that, the, our, our brain is receiving about the physical state of our body, and that whole cluster of interactions is part of mind of our mindedness. Mm. So, yeah, I you know I think that absolutely the the way our minds work and the way they develop, I mean, develop in evolutionary terms and develop in in terms of you know how we grow uh, from infancy, it, it it it's intimately shaped by the fact that it's embodied in these particular bodies. Yes, there's a nice bit in the, the book where you, you say, look, there's this, this the, 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 the fallacy of the input-output model that we just 
take information in and then you know the little algorithmic handle turns and out goes and in, you say the mind is in a conversation with itself the whole time so it's it's much more circular that it's not just there's the world out there there's some information this is what i'll do can you explain a little bit more about what you mean because it's it's a lovely image of being in conversation with yourself yeah well in in some sense it's literally that because the brain is uh, is modular so there are parts of the brain that do different things that, you know, obviously there, there are parts that process visual information, there are parts that process auditory information, there are parts that respond to the emotions. And somehow out, out of all those different systems, we have to arrive at what we're going to do. So there is, if you like, literally a, a, a conversation happening. And in fact, one of the theories of how consciousness arises sort of draws on this image of, you know, there being various inputs from various different brain modules that come into what in this theory is called a global workspace, a, a kind of a center of attention, really. Um, and it attends to all these different signals, somehow integrates them and arrives at a, a decision about, okay, what, the world, what, what is my experience at the moment? What is the world like, given all these things that I'm experiencing? And some of them may conflict. In fact, often they will conflict. And so we have to, you know, the mind has to make a, a decision because in the end, it needs to have a coherent picture of the world. If we lose that coherence, then we lose the ability to mind well. And in fact, some, you know, mental dysfunctions, uh, some mental health conditions are related to that breakdown of the ability to create a coherent view from all these different inputs. So in that sense, um, whether or not that gives rise to consciousness or not is, is not clear, but it's certainly something that's mm. happening in the mind because there are all these different inputs. But I think it's, it, you know, it's also the case that, as you say, the, um, what the mind is actually receiving from the world is so complex. We're actually having to filter out even before we start that, that decision-making process of what to do or how to represent the world, we're filtering experience. And we're not just filtering stuff out, we're actually putting stuff in as well. This mm. is the amazing thing about the mind that we you know, just don't realise. I mean, there was one really striking experiment that um, uh, I, I mentioned in the book that um, a, lot of the, uh, a lot of the vision on the peripheries of our, of, of our sight doesn't have colour in it. It sounds so weird to, to think this because, of course, we experience the world in full color. But if the experiment consisted of giving people um, virtual reality you know, simulators and so that they could control how much color was actually coming in and they could reduce, remove almost all of the color from the peripheral vision. And you just have a little bit in front of you. And nevertheless, the, you know, the mind of the, 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 the people in this experiment just put that color back in. Uh, making assumptions basically on what it was likely to be and we're doing that all the time not just with color but with i mean you know we don't we're not aware of thinking for example we, the mind just kind of creates a sense of continuity rather than the world constantly going black every so often so the relationship between the if you like the physical uh inputs you know from light and from sound and so on and what we actually experience is really complex and involves a great deal of invention on the part of the mind, or you perhaps better to say assumption on the part of mm. the mind of what is likely to be going on. So, you know, in that sense, too, uh, there's a real kind of complex interaction. You could even, you know, could almost say conversation between, you know, what, what is out there 
and what we are doing to create an experience of it. Mm. So, so whatever consciousness is, or the mind is, it's not a, it's not like a recording device. It's not a camera where you just take the lens cap off and oh, the reality floods in. What you're saying is a lot of the time the reality is being painted out. We're, we're coming up with what we expect a model and and actually putting that model out and then thinking we're seeing it whereas we're not seeing it we're creating it we are and you know it's actually totally a model i mean this is the thing that you know it's it's, it's not something we can really intuit it does feel so our experience in the world is so immediate that we you know it doesn't feel right to, to to say that but of course everything we're experiencing is in here where else can it be mm. one of the weirdest things i find about the mind is that it's able to project itself outwards that we're convinced that you know what is out there is, is, is what we're saying is, is is actually out there now of course there has to be a pretty good correspondence between what we're experiencing and what is actually causing that experience otherwise we wouldn't function well in the world we've evolved to do that within our narrow window of, of sensory perception. There's lots that we still you know, don't see. But nevertheless, it's all having to be constructed in the mind. Where else can it be constructed? And so in that sense, it's in that sense really that um, some people talk about uh, uh, re- reality or our perception really as being a controlled hallucination. Mm. And you know, some people object saying, well, are you saying that nothing is real? It's all an illusion. But no, it's not that. It's just that it is a construct you know of necessity it's a construct and we just have to hope that it corresponds well enough to the world out there for us to be able to navigate the world and clearly you know on the whole it does but when we have breakdowns you know with hallucinogenic drugs or with uh, mental dysfunctions that's really when it becomes clear that actually (laughs) we can't take it for granted that what is out there is going to stay so nicely pinned to what is what we experience yeah I, mean, I think we all get that feeling when we go and vote because we we think i know what's going to happen now because i voted for it and then something completely different happens and you think well i wasn't expecting that yeah i'm used to that feeling for sure <laughs> um let's talk about the other small topic you decided to take on free will and you come down on the side that there is <laughs> yeah i Figured I had, I mean, you know, there's reams written on this uh, topic in itself, and it's hugely contentious and furiously argued. Uh, but I felt I had to say something about it because it is such uh, a, a central aspect of what of what our minds experience. Yeah. And I also thought that, you know, I, I also wanted to ask within the sort of framing device of my book, well, can we imagine a mind that doesn't have free will, that has experience as we do, but that is just somehow watching itself do stuff, you know, without any volition? I find it very hard to imagine a mind like that. And I think the reason I do is that it goes against what minds are for. Mm. Um, what would be the purpose of a mind like that rather than just having an insensate sort of machine-like device that is just responding to, mm. um, you know, to, to what happens? But some of the people at least, well, in fact, it's hard to get away from the idea that if you don't believe in free will, actually that is all we are. We are just, you know, yeah. pushed around and we're just imagining that we're actually, you know, having any effect on it. But actually we are just these these machines being pushed around by atoms and being dictated to by the conditions of the Big Bang, that, you know, everything unfolded in yeah. everything. From that. And there are people who, who, who argue that. 
the position I take in, in, in the book is that for me to believe I have free will, all I would ask is that I be, in some meaningful sense, the cause of things that happen, of things that happen to me, or of some of the things that happen to me. So uh, to, 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 to my mind, it comes that free will comes down to this idea of causation. Where is causation in the world? If causation just blows up from atoms colliding, it is very hard to see how free will fits into that. And, you know, people who argue for that position say, well, you know, what else is there? apart from forces between atoms where where is where can the free will come in to actually move atoms around and i guess my answer to that would be it, just like this it, it, it that this is free will if you like or in my mind moving atoms is actually very simple and if you say well okay but let's break that down it's your neurons firing and those neurons are firing because there are ions going through the cell walls through proteins you know that's all it is, but but there are very good reasons, not just hand waving reasons, but actually technical reasons. When you start to, there are ways to quantify causation in a complex system to measure how much causation resides at the different levels of the system, and if you do that for complex systems like the brain, then it seems to indicate quite clearly that there is more causation happening at the higher levels of the system. That you have to say. Um, you know, at the level of individual neurons, there is no causal power that is causing this glass to move. It's only at the higher level of my sort of neural modules, really, at that level of my decision-making neural apparatus. That's where causation is, is primarily coming from. So that's all I'm asking for. You make it sound so simple, but it's actually it's quite heretical. I mean, a lot of physicists would throw their hands up and say, well, it's, just, it's nonsense. But I was very interested because, I mean, I read loads of books on this subject for my day job. And uh, you, you mentioned Philip Anderson, who I have to say, to my shame, I'd not heard of before. But tell us a, a little bit about him. Uh, oh, well, Phil Anderson is a Nobel laureate physicist. From the 70s, Ooh. right? Uh, yeah, that's right. He, uh, he and his work was um, because we we haven't heard anything about him because he worked primarily in the area of physics that is actually central to physics, but is the, is deeply unsexy. It's called condensed matter physics, and it's about basically explaining how actual stuff behaves, not particles, but you know solids and liquids. And so Phil Anderson worked on this, particularly on, in the phenomenon of, of superconductivity, which is an exotic behavior of some metals when they cool down. Anyway, he, he, but he was one of those people who really had, uh, and it's very hard to find people like this now, I have to say, who had a really broad view of uh, all, all of physics. So he understood you know, particle physics as well. And be, I think it's because of that broad view that he recognized that there are, there's a degree of autonomy at each level of the hierarchy, as you sort of go up through the complexity from quarks to atoms to, you know, to molecules, to solids, to us, to society. Each of those has rules that govern what happens that don't depend on the fine details of, of the system below it. That's, that's the really important thing. They, so they have that sort of autonomy. And he said that this is this is the nature of complex systems. It, he argued this in a 1972 article called More is Different. So what he means by that is that as you get more and more stuff, 
you don't, it's not just a sort of, uh, what, what the behavior is not just an integration of all the little behaviors, actually qualitatively new things happen. You know, there is no solidity at the level of atoms, for example, but solidity isn't an illusion. It's, it's an emergent property of all these different atoms when they get together. So, you know, that's, and, and it's a real thing. Um, so that's the kind of thing that Phil Anderson was saying. And I think he was quite prescient in saying that because that was before people started to really get interested in complex systems. And it was be well before at least the, 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 this idea that I talked about of thinking about, you know, where cores operate mm. in, in complex systems. But I think that work in that area now has really validated Phil Anderson's position that it, we really do have to grant autonomy to different levels of the hierarchy of complex systems. There is nothing, the idea that, you know, we call it fundamental physics when we sort of go down to the level of atoms or of, of subatomic particles, but it's not actually any more fundamental than anything else. It's just a certain kind of, you know, there are certain laws that apply at that level, but there are other laws that apply at a high level that don't contradict the ones below, but that can't necessarily be predicted from them. Just as you can't predict from knowing everything there is to know about the, the mind of a starling, you will not be able to predict murmurations of starlings. That only arises at that higher level. So that's the sort of central but, idea. But even scientific theories, I mean, the, the law of natural selection isn't there in physics. There was no law of natural selection when the universe began because there was nothing to select amongst. That, that's true, although it's a really interesting discussion whether there is something about the nature of matter or actually perhaps even more fundamentally the nature of information that makes something like natural selection kind of inevitable mm -hmm. when matter gets complex enough and that, you know i think it's a completely open question but it's a, I, I think it's it's not one that is outside of science to begin to, to to examine whether something like natural selection was inevitable once you have matter that has certain properties once you have you know molecules that, that, sure. that start to and and in fact you know one thing i i ask at the end of the book is whether mindedness might actually be a sort of an inevitable property of the universe because i i think we've we, we're not astonished enough and not astonished often enough at this very weird thing that has happened in the universe that it's become aware of itself you know that sounds like a very kind of poetic flowery thing to say but actually it's simply the truth yeah. that a bit of the universe here and and there has become aware of itself you know to in some sense in to some degree was that inevitable where did where did that capacity come from uh, one of the questions I, you know, I do try to, to, to pose, at least in this book, is whether we can start to make headway in thinking about that and thinking about whether there's some fundamental property of how information is organized in the universe mm. that makes minds inevitable in the same way as general relativity makes black holes inevitable. Yeah. Well, that's one of the very nice things about the book is that in a way, what you do is you pose better questions rather than trying to give us answers. I can't think of anywhere in the book where you say, well, there's the answer. What you do is say, look, here's some badly put questions from the past. Let's let's unpack them a bit and see if we can put them in a much more interesting way. And that's one of the nice things about the book, and particularly where you end up, because in a way you sort of end up thinking about, well, are the electrons, are the, the fundamental particles, are they 
what creates your thoughts. In some sense, they are. But can the thoughts push the electrons around as well, which is what you're saying somehow? Yeah, it is. I mean, it sounds kind of weird. It sounds mystical, doesn't it? Put like that, as though there's some weird psychic force that is moving matter. <laughs> but actually, all I'm saying is that causal power accumulates. Evolution, actually, you know, is that's one of the things it does, actually. It spreads causal power um, up to higher levels of the system. And there are ways that you can quantify that. There's nothing mystical about that. You, it, 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 it's perfectly uh, straightforward. And that's what... That, that's what biological agency to my mind mm. is all about that it's an accumulation of causal power at higher levels of the system simply using you know nothing mystical simply using all the forces and particles that we know about but you know sort of relocating where cause is coming from that as complexity deepens and as evolution proceeds that is what we see happening um, so yeah, I you know I, uh, that that's certainly something I'm trying to suggest. I mean, David, I'm very glad that you you saw the book that way as trying to find better questions. Um, I, I think already there's a little indication that you know some people might be a bit disappointed by that because we're used to these books that have promised that they're going to tell you how the mind works, and, <laughs> and you're not going to get that from this. No, book. as if you could find the answer to life, universe, and everything for eight ninety nine in Waterstones. It's just not going to happen. <laughs> I don't think so. That's certainly not in, in this book, but that's exactly what I want to do. I want to try to find, to pose better questions and to provide a framework for thinking about these things that we absolutely don't have the answer to yet. I think we would be shortchanging ourselves to pretend that, you know, we have the answers to these things. But I, I think, you know, that's obviously often how progress is made in science anyway. It's not by, by doing some experiment to find a better answer, but actually finding a better way to formulate the question. Hmm. Do you expect pushback from some parts of science? Because although you, you come across very reasonably in the book, you, you know, you, you're sort of open about what you're talking about and what, where your assumptions are. Um, you do take a lot of positions and your overall argument is one which would horrify a whole group of scientists. Do you expect pushback? Have you had any from them? There, there may be, I mean, certainly in talking about free will, you're, yeah, you know, you're going to upset someone in, inevitably. But, uh, but I, I guess I feel there, to, to, you know, to be frank, I felt it, it, it's these arguments about determinism of fundamental particles, trying to talk about free will in terms of what fundamental particles do. It, 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 it's it's really a dead end. It's really time to leave that behind. That that kind of you know it, it goes back to Pierre Simon Laplace in the 18th century that if we knew where all the particles are, we can predict the future. We've moved on from that. Actually, the interesting questions to ask there are about the neurobiology of volition. That's that's what I'm saying. That it's you know let's let's actually pose some questions that are meaningful in, in that sphere, which is about how, how, how does volition work? How does our decision-making work? So there may be some pushback there, but I think elsewhere, what I've really tried to do, I mean, you know, I have a chapter on consciousness, but what I've really tried to do is to give a sense of the ways people are thinking about consciousness mm. and not to take a view. I, I, don't, I, I don't think, I, I, I couldn't take a view. I, I, you know, the, the, as far as I can see at the moment, we simply don't have the data, the experiments to distinguish between different views of consciousness. But I think a lot of them, a lot of the theories that, put, that have been put, put forward are interesting and they, you know, provide a window on that on that question. So let's be pluralist at this point until we have, you know, until the, the data is in. 
And I think, uh, you know, I would hope in terms of what I say about, I mean, you know, another controversial possibly area is where I talk about plant neurobiology and biosynthesis. Mm. So there are serious scientists now who argue that plants have something like sentience. Uh, even some argue they might experience something like pain. So it's like something to be a dandelion. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not probably not like very much, but it's like something. It's not the same. Being a dandelion is not the same as being a stone. And to that degree, I think that's true. Actually, I think that living things are, you know, there's something qualitatively different about them. Whether that qualitative difference requires you to invoke some kind of mind for everything that is alive, that's basically the biopsychist position. I'm agnostic about, but I think it's an interesting question to ask uh, if it means that you can start to formulate, you know, hypotheses, uh, testable questions about that. And I think for that reason, I welcome plant neurobiology and biopsychism, you know, if it's a productive way of thinking about things, even if we end up thinking, well, actually, it doesn't mean very much to say that bacterium has a mind. What I think it is meaningful to say is that life itself is probably best seen as a cognitive process. So leaving mm. aside questions of sentience, thinking about it as, as a cognitive process rather than as a machine-like process, I think yeah. is a far more fertile way to, to talk about biology in general. Yes. But I mean, you, you say you, you, you know, you're quite open and, uh, about looking at different things, but you do take two very strong views, which is one, there is consciousness, the idea that consciousness is just is an illusion. And you think free will is not an illusion either. Do you think we've left behind that worldview? Because it's not that long ago where you couldn't say either of those two things without being told that you were just some rampantly anti-scientific um, hippie. Do you think we've left that behind now? And if we have, it hasn't. It's happened quite quickly. Well, you know, I mean, we've also left behind the uh, the the idea that if you said if you believe in panpsychism, in in there being a bit of consciousness and everything, that you're mm. you're a hippie. I mean, it's not a, a mainstream view, but it's coming back into philosophy, which sure. is quite interesting. I don't think I, I, I don't take that view myself, but but you know, it, you, one is allowed to say it. I think with with, with free will, I I, I guess. I, I really hope, as I say, that it just gets moved on to uh, a more productive discussion, with, you know, about about neurobiology. Um, with consciousness, I, I, I guess I feel I'm very much with the philosopher Galen Strawson here. I think it was Galen who 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 said, you know, that to say free will is an illusion, it's hard to know where you even start. And it, it's like, you know, it's it's like saying, I mean, it is like saying actually, solidity is an illusion, and I say I refute it thus um because come on i mean it, it's you know people used to say that right they used to say well it's not because it's mostly empty space but no it's not it's you know it, it's a it, it's one of these emerging properties and i think to to, to say conscious i mean consciousness is it, it, it's almost as though you have to it's a bit like free will actually you almost have to redefine it as something other than what it self-evidently is what it means in order to say it's an illusion it's fear it's what it's <laughs> It's, it's what we experience. That is consciousness. Now, that is what we're meant to explain. If you want to make it into something that you can kind of, you know, explain away and say, well, it, you know, it's not real. Somehow we're an automaton. I don't quite know where you even go with that, because if what you're saying contradicts experience, what have we got left? So I, I guess I feel, and I think that's, I, you know, I don't think that's really controversial in neuroscience now. I think most 
neuroscientists are wanting to explain consciousness and to understand it, uh, but not to explain it away and not to, um, yeah, not to deny it. Um, we've got a, a question come in, um, if you don't mind. Um, Stella says, <laughs> is there any topic that intrigues you, but for which you couldn't find a better question? Brackets, shall you mull this over for a follow-up book too? <laughs> me, but for which I couldn't find a better question. I mean, <laughs> that, that I probably will need to mull that over. I mean, one thing, okay, there's probably a nagging thought in the back of my mind that that is true of consciousness. I certainly think, as I say, that's true of free will, that actually that there are better questions to ask, which are about, you know, decision-making and, 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 and volition. And I kind of, I, part of me does wonder whether actually uh, the way consciousness, you know, the, the arguments about consciousness will be resolved is that we'll think, oh, crikey, we should have been asking this rather than that we'll find an answer to what is consciousness. It's, it, it, the question will be relocated. That often happens. I think that's probably going to happen in quantum mechanics for what it's worth as well. So um so maybe that's one of them maybe we are still waiting for the better question about consciousness mm. it, it it does boil down to whether you're willing to have emergence it's one of those words isn't it 20 years ago emergence you were told to leave the room and go and wash your mouth out and now you're allowed to and in some ways the anti-emergence seems less scientific the notion that if i asked you philip what's two and two what, what's the answer to two and two? You're going to say four. I think it's because you had an idea worked out from the rules of mathematics. And it seems so unparsimonious to say, well, actually, some quarks and electrons headed out from the Big Bang 14 billion years ago, and they were always destined to collide with each other to make you say the words four. That just seems so unlikely. <laughs> It, well, w w what it really means, I mean, I talk about this in the book as well. Um, if you pursue that line, your explanation for everything that happens is simply, it has to be, you cannot avoid it. It has to be simply a description of everything that has happened since the Big Bang. That is the nature of your, all your, and so in the end, all you're saying, if you take that, you know, hard determinist position that it's all particles, all you end up saying is, that everything that happened happened and if it happened again it would happen again <laughs> um, that it takes a bit of unpacking but really that's where you end up with that's all that you can say and to my mind you know that is that is so it's so empty i mean it's not an explanation is it it's just a description is it the scientific version of um, it's like god moves in mysterious ways it's just saying the universe moves in mysterious ways it, like you say what kind of explanation is that yeah, or, or even you know not even in mysterious ways but just the well you just saying the universe is it just did what it did you know that that's what happened so actually if you you know if you take that view you you, you there is nothing you can obviously exclude from your explanation you know between the event and the big bang yeah. nothing um, including every quantum mechanical fluctuation that happened, because those were crucial at the, the beginning of the Big Bang. They, you know, they what came out of it was contingent on those. So it, 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 it so it becomes, you know, that if you take that idea seriously, that's really my problem. That the, the hard determinists don't take their their own view seriously enough. If they took it seriously enough, that's what they would end up as, and you know, that's what they'd end up with, and and that's that. It, it is no explanation at all. We've run out of time, but just what's the next book, Philip? 
Go on, tell us what it is. Okay, the next book... In a, in a few seconds, tell yeah, us. Yeah, it, it, it's equally absurd. It's going to be at least this size, I'm afraid. Um, it, it, it's about how... <laughs> I, I'm embarrassed even to say this. It's about how life works. It's about... It's trying to move on the narratives that we have about biology to ones that actually reflect what we have learned over the past two or three decades about how life really works. Fabulous. I look forward to interviewing you about it. Hurry up and get it printed. Um, Philip, thanks very much indeed for joining us. Thanks, David. Pleasure. This episode of the How To Academy podcast starred Philip Ball and was presented by David Malone. The episode was produced by Dana Outcult and the show is made by me, Vas Christodoulou and Esme Bright. Visit us at howtoacademy.com for more science and philosophy this summer. From Slavoj Žižek on our topsy-turvy world to Hannah Critchlow on the neuroscience of collective intelligence. Until next time, thanks for listening.